chances are the drinks being poured at the very best New Year's Eve parties will come from France, the home of champagne. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, a wine expert from Paris explains how to grasp the complexities of wine in France so that you can taste for yourself the many flavors of the French countryside. Think of the words you would use to describe a person. A wine can be shy, it can be exuberant, it can be loud, it can be tender, it can be soft, it can be shallow, it can be boring. Olivier Manier, who's rich in character himself, joins us today to appreciate the simple pleasure you can find in the wines of France. And if you want to greet the new year with the traditions of Scotland instead, a broom comes in handy. If you're going for tradition, then you make sure the house is clean. We'll check in with friends from Edinburgh for a Scottish New Year that would make old Robbie Burns proud. And listeners share their travel ambitions for the new year. Let's toast our friends from near and far in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring European Christmas traditions in the last few weeks on Travel with Rick Steves, and we keep finding ourselves talking about Germany, where so many of the traditions we associate with the holiday came from. But when it's time to welcome in the new year, I'd say Scotland and France share center stage. Scotland, for the Robert Burns lyrics, the whole world sings at midnight, and France, for the champagne that fills your glass. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves we revisit the New Year's traditions that should help you ring in your own New Year on a high note. And we'll check in with listener resolutions for the New Year in a bit at 877-333-7425. On a recent trip to Paris, I enjoyed a beautiful afternoon in a royal French wine cellar a block from the Louvre. Two crude lamps were hanging from a rustic vault, and before us a whole table full of sparkling empty glasses awaited an impressive array of French wines. And as we drank, our wine expert taught us with a wonderful commentary. Now, I'm no wine expert and would never claim to be, but I learned a lot. So I've invited this man to join us to continue that education. His name is Olivier Magny, and he is a young sommelier from Paris. Olivier, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Olivier, I had such a beautiful afternoon with you. Tell us about your business and and what you do in Paris. Well, basically, what we do at Au Chateau is we try to explain French wine to people. People might come to France loving wine, but not really knowing much about French wine. We try to help them make sense of French wine. So we give wine tasting classes that are actually in English, and we have classes every day. Uh, We also do day trips to Champagne. We do uh, cruises on the Seine River. And we also recently opened a wine bar. You know, French wines have a great reputation among Americans. What do Europeans think of French wines? Oh, well, Europeans just love, they love French wines, really. Um, there's a lot of good wines, so it's hard not to like them. But I would say that some of the biggest consumers of French wine in the world are the UK, Belgium, Germany. So really our neighbors are big consumers of French wine. But it's funny because in Europe, you know, you have old IDs that basically stick. So when people want to buy cars or dishwashers, they think Germany, yes, France, no. And it's just the opposite for wine, which is actually kind of funny because, you know, the Germans make great wine. And French cars are actually not that bad. So, <laughs> But overall, you know, French wine, anybody who likes wine is going to like French wine at some point. Now make some general observations for us about the character of wines from different French regions and how that relates to the, the experience you're going to have enjoying the wine and, and the prices. In a nutshell, what you can remember about French wine that's going to be helpful is that if you like lighter wines, okay, you should stick to the northern part of France, so the Loire Valley, so Burgundy, Champagne, Alsace. If you prefer big, you know, fuller-bodied wines, well, you should head to the south where it's sunnier, so you're going to have more concentration. Also, you should remember that if you're going for the big names, you know, Bordeaux, Champagne, Burgundy, well, you're going to have to pay a big price. And if you're going for names that are not as well-known, the Languedoc, the southwest and such regions, well, that's where you're going to get really great value for your money. So if you haven't heard of the region, Languedoc, Southwest, can you conclude the quality is less or it's just not marketed as well? No, absolutely not. You find really good wines everywhere in France. A tip I give to my clients, if, if you're hesitating between two bottles, 
that are at the same exact price, one that comes from a well-known area, one that mm -hmm. comes from the not-so-well-known area, go for the one that's not-so-well-known because for the same price, it's usually going to be better. A region like the Languedoc, for instance, it's the largest wine-producing region in the world. The Languedoc makes more wine than Australia. The Languedoc makes more wine than Argentina. And yet, most people have not even heard of the Languedoc. You know, most people, when they're looking for Shiraz, they look at Australian wines. Well, the Languedoc has three times more Shiraz planted than all of Australia. So really, French wine, the, the main thing to me that characterizes French wine is bad marketing. And hmm. to understand that is you have to look at the sociology of who is behind the wine. And basically, they're farmers. So they're not corporations. They're not marketing people at all. They're just small farmers that try to make good wine, basically. So you could get a high-end Languedoc wine and it would cost less than a low-end Bordeaux and conceivably be a much better wine? Absolutely. It's a different style because the grapes are a little bit different. But if you spend, I'd say, in America, if you spend uh, $25, well, you're much, much better off going for a wine from the Southwest or from mm -hmm. the Languedoc than you are spending it on Bordeaux. Actually, I would tell you, if you only have $25 to spend, just stay away from Bordeaux because the inflation for the good wines in Bordeaux has been so gigantic over the past few years that uh, a good Bordeaux is going to be good, but it's going to be super expensive. So the demand, just because it's a famous name and anybody wants a Bordeaux, the demand's going to drive the price up. Olivier, you mentioned that the uh, southern part of France produces a heavier wine. Is it fair to say if you compared Spanish wines and German wines, that's going to be generally really heavy and lighter? It would sort of be similar to the regions bordering France, uh, Germany, and Spain? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what you say is very true. Basically, the climate of where the grapes are grown has a tremendous impact on the grapes and therefore on the style of wine. Um, so it's something that anybody can remember. The warmer the climate, the sunnier the area, the more concentration you're going to get. So it's going to make a big concentrated red wine. And it's also going to make for white wines that are a bit less fresh if you're in a really hot area. That's why if you look at a, a Champagne, Champagne is very fresh, it's very crisp. It's also because it's bad weather in Champagne. You know, you go to Champagne most of the year, it's rainy, it's okay. gray, it's pretty cold. Basically, if you want those crisp white wines, you got to step away from the sun. Now, you mentioned the French are, are not very good marketers of their wine. I know that the name of the region is, is quite important, and some regions defend their name and others don't, and they pay the consequences. What are a couple of examples of that? That is very true. You know, in, in America, people identify wine by the grape. You buy a Pinot Noir, Merlot. In France, not at all. And throughout Europe, basically, we talk about the regions. You know, you buy Bordeaux, Champagne, Beaujolais, uh, Chianti, in Italy. Those are regions, okay? And basically, when a name of a region becomes well-known, well, it creates a situation. And so that's what happened for Champagne, for instance. You know, the Champagne people, people started making sparkling wine all over the world, and they started calling it Champagne. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's bubbly, so it's Champagne. And the Champagne people are like, bup, 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 bup. you do whatever you please, but that's our name. You don't use our name. So they've and defended they that sued. word. Yeah, and they sued. They went all out in terms of legal procedures, and they won. They won everywhere. And so, therefore, they created basically a whole legal frame internationally where now you cannot use that word anymore. So they've going the extra mile legally has helped them and helped, helped I would say, everybody create a whole new field of law that has to do with the intellectual property of um, the origin of what we eat and drink. And it's huh. typically what people in Chablis have not been able to do. Most people in the U.S. think that Chablis, you know, it's two gallons for one ninety nine on a big box, and it's really bad wine. But if you look at the actual, the real French Chablis, no, so Appellation Chablis Contrôlé, that is actually really good wine. But since mm. very early in history, they, you know, it was very well known, and so the name Chablis was used all over the world, and they have not protected their name as well and as early as the Champagne people have. And therefore, now from North to South America and also in, in Australia, the name Chablis is not protected. So you can be, actually, if you look at the volumes of Chablis huh. produced, they're mostly produced in South America, in California, and in Australia, not in France. But if you want the real Chablis, you should aim for the, the French one. Do I recall seeing some wine labeled Method Champagne? Yeah, Method Champenoise, or Champagne Method, which means that they use the same method as they do in Champagne. Legally, you can get away with that. You can call it, this is you made. You used to. Oh, you can't do that you used anymore to. either. Wow. Yep, no. Now, huh. any reference, and that's a new ruling, any reference to the word and the region Champagne is actually illegal now. So even méthode champenoise or Champagne method, they cannot do that anymore. So they usually say méthode traditionnelle, traditional method now. What's your favorite sparkling wine outside of Champagne in France? 
Ooh, um, I think the Loire Valley has really good ones. I like the the sparkling ones in Vouvray, for instance. So with the really, Chenin you Blanc can Ray. get a what we would think of as a champagne in Vouvray or the Loire Valley. It has a different name, but it would be also very good. Absolutely, and much cheaper. Every wine region in France actually produces sparkling wine. Hmm. You can get sparkling wine from Alsace, but because from Bordeaux, they can't use the name Champagne, they can't charge what the market would bear. This is fascinating. We're speaking with Olivier Manier, and his website is o-chateau.com. O-chateau.com. We're talking about appreciating and enjoying French wine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Bill's on the phone in Tonawanda, New York. Bill, thanks for your call. Hello, Olivier. Hello. I have a more of a general type question than anything. I will go into a, uh, a wine store, and this is a pretty decent-sized wine store, and in the French red wine section, they have prices ranging from, well, roughly 8 to probably 10 times that amount in dollars from basically any region you can imagine, you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone, and with the thousands of vintners that, that France has, I have a tough time making a selection as far as trying to come up with a decent uh, Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon simply because there's such a variety and there's such a selection. So I was just simply wondering, how would you suggest you know, someone going in and trying to you know, identify what would be a, a good red wine you know, from France? I mean, do you do it by year first? Do you do it by region? You know, could you elaborate a little possibly on that? I'd say that most people in the state tend to know the grapes they like. You know, you know, you prefer Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir. So, what you can do at that point is find out which regions in France will grow these grapes. In France, and that's a huge difference with anywhere else in the world. Each region specializes on a given set of grape varieties. Okay, so if you like the Pinot Noir, you have to go to Burgundy. If you like the Merlot, Bordeaux is a good destination. If you like Shiraz, the Languedoc. It's going to be good. If you like Sauvignon Blanc, that's going to be the Loire, and so on and so forth. Once you have identified the regions that might please you the most, then you're going to grow more familiar with the prices and potentially the names of the wineries that you're going to like. Okay, if you say, oh, I like a good Shiraz, uh, if I want a big Shiraz, I'm going to go in the Languedoc. If I want a Shiraz that's going to be a bit more delicate, I'm going to go in the Rhone Valley. Okay? And in the Rhone Valley, in the States, you find some big names. You find Chapoutier, you find Jaboulet, you find Chave. And then you can know, you know, you can start exploring. I would say the vintage, so the year, should come last because the vintage has to do with basically the weather, but the weather in that specific region of the world. It's actually a great way to notice people who are completely full of it when it comes to wine. People will tell you, oh, you know, 2005, great year. You're like, where? You know, is that huh. New Zealand? Is that <laughs> Sonoma County? Is that, you know? So first, identify the grapes you like. Then that will tell you the regions. And then you can look into uh, wineries and in two vintages. Oh, that's terrific. Okay. You should do the wine tasting class at the beginning of your trip because we have a lot of people who do it at the end and say, oh, man, I wish I'd done it before. This way I could have ordered the wine better and more conveniently uh, every time we went out. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> hey, Bill, thanks for your call. Thank you, Bill, and see you soon then in Paris. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your, your suggestions, Olivier. Happy travels, Bill. Bye-bye. By the way, Olivier Manier's Au Chateau recently received the Award of Excellence from Wine Spectator magazine for having one of the best wine lists in Paris. There's more on wines of France, plus a peek at New Year's traditions in Scotland, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves.
We'll check in with listeners in a bit to find out what travel resolutions they're making for the new year. Right now, on Travel with Rick Steves, Olivier Manier of Au Chateau in Paris is coaching us on the wines of France and how local character makes all the difference in what you're drinking. Olivier, I hear this word terroir a lot. How do you define terroir? Well, the best translation I found in English was somewhere in Ness. The idea that if you are in a specific place, well, the local environment is going to give a unique taste to your grape and therefore to your wine. So you can have two Chardonnays. If they're grown in two different places, well, they have that potential for being different. And that's what the terroir is about. So it's a combination of the climate, the soil, the culture, even the culture? I would say soil, microclimate, microclimate, geology, uh, and also the people. You know, the people that are involved in making it. People today and people also yesterday. So the whole know-how that's been accumulated over the, the years. So can you take a French grape and a French vintner to a different country with the same climate and duplicate the same quality wine? No, sir. You can make very good wine. But each wine is absolutely unique. That's the nature of wine. Wine is not Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, it's a recipe, and so it's always the same. Wine is never the same because it's a natural product. It's just fermented grape juice. So where you are is always going to have an impact on the style of the wine you're going to make, should you want to reveal that uniqueness, of course. How does topsoil shape the character of the wine? Well, the soil is the most important thing to understand wine because basically vine is a creeper. Okay, so the roots grow very deep. To give you an idea, a root can go as far as uh, 150 feet down. Okay, so it's extremely deep. So meaning you're going to cross all of these geological layers, you know, each having its own little fauna and flora and bacterial activity. So all this is going to feed the roots with a unique taste of that place. And therefore the grape will come up with a unique taste, which is the taste of that place, of that very terroir. So there is no understanding wine if you don't realize how much wine has to do with the soil and how wine has to do with geology. So the, the vintner can shape or influence the character of the topsoil, but, but the deeper geology is really uh, tied to the, the history of that land, and, and that's what the vines are looking for? Absolutely. You know, it's actually interesting because in France it's illegal to irrigate vine. And we do not allow this because basically if you irrigate vine, which is something you find all over the rest of the world of wine, they do drip irrigation, okay? So they feed water on the surface. If you do this, the roots are going to grow because it's their nature, but they grow horizontally ah. instead of growing vertically, instead of going down. So those roots never leave the superficial layer. So meaning the true uniqueness, the true singularity of your soil, you're not going to express it. Ah. So it's actually with a single piece of regulation, like the absence of uh, irrigation, that's going to trigger a fantastic diversity in the wines produced in France. A lot of vintners in my travels have made a big deal about their oak barrels, and I, I never hear French vintners bragging about oak barrels. In France, we like to look at oak as makeup for a woman. You know, a little bit of makeup is good. If the first thing you notice about a woman is her makeup, yeah, you might lose a bit of elegance. And oak is a bit the same. You know, a little bit is good. So not too oaky there. <laughs> When we're tasting wine, a lot of us uh, rookies just think dry, sweet, fruity, oaky, this sort of thing. What are some key words that can expand our vocabulary so we can actually identify characteristics that are important? Well, I would say think of the words you would use to describe a person. You know, you're at a restaurant, think of the words you would use to describe the person in front of you. You know, a wine can be shy, it can be exuberant, it can be loud, it can be tender, it can be soft, it can be shallow, it can be boring. To me, those are much better terms. Hmm. Also because frequently when people use the words dry, uh, sweet, they don't really understand what it means. So it might lead to more, you know, blur between you and the person trying to express your your wine preferences mm-hmm. to. When you look at a lot of people in wine tastings, they'll suck in air as they're tasting the wine or they'll actually chew the wine. What's going on there and, and, and what is actually helpful? It's basically oxygen has a big impact and it's going to help release the aromas, okay? And the aromas of wine are pretty volatile. So when you subject them to, to oxygen, it's going to make your wine much more loud, much more, it will bring out its flavors and aromas. It's the same logic basically when you decant the wine and when you let the wine breathe, it's just putting ah. oxygen in contact with the wine. Looking at your wine with a magnifying glass, you know. What do you look for in a good white wine? I like my white ones to be crisp, to be fresh. You know, I like a refreshing white one. That's, to me, the greatest quality. And that's something I love about French whites, is that they're so crisp and so fresh. What about legs? People talk a lot about the legs. When they swish the glass, they look at the little drips coming down and say, nice legs. 
Absolutely. All those like two things in those sugar and alcohol. Okay. So basically, if you have a white one in white, alcohol is relatively steady. So the legs will highlight the sugar content. So you'll be able to see whether it's dry, that's low sugar, sweet, that's high sugar. Uh, for reds, it's less clear cut. So you're going to be able to say if it's going to be a lighter wine if it has a few legs or a bigger, stronger wines if it has a lot of legs, if they're much faster, more, more thick as well. Why is French wine so diverse? I mean, there must be a thousand different French wines in, in one country. Well, first, volumes. You know, France is the largest wine-producing country in the world. We make uh, 24% of all the wines in the world. So necessarily, we're going to have a lot of diversity. The geography as well. France is a very small country, but basically all the climates you find in the world, you'll find them somewhere in France. And then, of course, we have that history and the culture to preserve and to express that local um, variety. We're not in the culture of making high volumes of similar wines, you know, of branded wines, of big brands, of Yellowtail, of Gal. France is not about this at all. It's a bunch of very small people. So for consumers, it might be a bit like overwhelming, like, oh my God, it's so... But please, I, I, I really ask to give um, those wines a chance because if we don't, the wine industry is going to be like every other industry in the world. It's just going to be McDonald's and, and so on. It's going to be like three companies running the show, which is basically already the case in California, already the case in Australia. So resistance, my friends, go for the smaller names. Because that's what you think on a global scale. Wine is really being consolidated into a few big growers. And in France, we don't have that. Is the government actually having policies that protects the small vintner? Not really. It's really... Uh, Culturally, first, the French are not very much inclined to buying from big brands when it comes to wine. Okay. And then the fact that what they do is good, so they can be rather prosperous. And, and really, that diversity of wineries, basically to give you some numbers, California has around 2,000 wineries. France, as a comparison, has a bit more than 150,000. So it's just gigantic, you know. And uh, each winery will produce, I don't know, five to ten different wines every year. So the diversity is very much out there. And we need to help these people um, stay alive. I'm not talking as a Frenchman. I'm really talking as a, you know, well, Rick, you've, you've traveled all over the world. And you probably realize that everywhere you travel, you find McDonald's, you find Starbucks, you find Pizza Hut, you find all these big chains everywhere. And that's because we consumers, we buy from them. You know, But mm -hmm. if we stop spending our money with the same big corporations and, and redirected our money to the smaller people, it would make for a much more interesting and uh, tasteful uh, world, I believe. Okay, so the survival of the small vintner in France is because of a savvy market that appreciates the value of having healthy small vintners. What impact do the French vintners see on their wines because of climate change? Well, worldwide, I think that uh, you can see temperatures are rising and have risen over the years. And, you know, there's two types of maturities in the, in the grapes. You basically harvest when you have enough sugar, and so that's due directly to the sunshine. But there's another aspect, which is the ripeness of the tannins, of the skin, basically, and there used to be a difference of two or three days between the moment the sugar ready and the moment the tannins were ready. And now, since temperatures have risen, uh, you have more like two or three weeks. So meaning in the meantime, you have to wait for the tannins, for the skins to be ripe. And so you harvest with much higher uh, sugar concentration, which leads to the, the escalation that we all witness in terms of uh, alcohol concentration in our wine. It used to be 12, 13%. Now it's frequently 14, 15, sometimes 16 sometimes even more percent uh, alcohol, and that's all due to uh, climate change. The alcohol level's going up and the sweetness is going up because the climate is changing. Absolutely. There's two things. One, people who are newcomers to wine like sweet, they like heavy, they like rich. It's an easier thing to like, so there's an incentive from a marketing standpoint to produce that style of wine. And then there's also the climate, which uh, basically doesn't leave you much of a choice. If you're in Napa Valley, and you want to make a red wine, it's going to be very hard to make it less than 14% alcohol. And then what's the right temperature to drink a red wine? I think there's a little confusion about that lately. Well, yeah, because, you know, we, everybody says room temperature, but the expression room temperature came from times where the, the rooms we lived in were much cooler in terms of temperature than they are today. So I think we have a tendency to serve red wine a bit too warm. Um, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to put your wine in the refrigerator for a few minutes before you drink it. So I think we, we serve reds a bit too warm and white wines a bit too cold, a bit too chilled. Uh, take them out of the fridge a little bit before you drink them. You'll see you'll make both the reds and the whites much more drinkable. I'm glad you said that because I would like the red to be a little cooler than how it's normally served. You could even ask at a restaurant to, to chill it for a while. Oh, yeah, fully acceptable. Don't be shy. Five or ten minutes in the fridge and it'll be better for you. I agree. 
Olivier, take me to a beautiful place to enjoy a glass of wine with you, and let's look at the view and share one tip on how we can better appreciate the wine culture of France. I would say explore, you know, like go beyond your big names, step away from Bordeaux, from Burgundy, and go for the lesser known names. You will save money and you'll have the excitement of uh, discovery. There are 9,600 different sorts of grapes in the world. Your wine aficionado will know like 10 or 15. So explore. There's a whole world of under-the-radar wine. So just sit there and truly explore because that's what traveling is about, really exploring, not only visually, but also in your plate and in your glass, something that's unique to that place. Okay, then let's grab that glass of wine. Let's sit on a terrace and look out over a bit of France that really makes the package complete. Where would you take me and what would we drink? I would take you to a hill in Alsace, which is, I believe, a completely underrated wine region, a lovely white wine in Alsace, and we would drink a lovely uh, Pinot Gris, and we'd sit there and we'd watch the beautiful Alsatian villages and the churches, the, the smoke coming out of the chimneys, and we'd drink something really crisp and fresh, and the sunshine will not be too warm, just be warm enough, and it would just be a blast. I can see it right now. Corduroy hills. I love it when the when the vines sort of make a corduroy pattern on the hills. And you know that just over the Rhine River is Germany. At your back are the Vosges Mountains. And on your table is a glass of beautiful Pinot Gris. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Olivier Manier. Olivier uh, has a wine bar in Paris. He gives uh, wine tastings and talks about wine. You can learn more about his work at his website, ochateau.com, o-chateau.com. And let's finish it with a toast, Olivier. Well, I would uh, take the words of our former president, Jacques Chirac, who whenever he would offer a toast, would raise his glass and would say, à nos chevaux, à nos femmes, et à ceux qui les montent. Which would translate into, to our horses, to our wives, and to those who ride them. Voilà. Vive la France. Merci bien, Olivier Magny. <laughs> Merci. Should all acquaintance be forgot And never brought to mind Should all acquaintance be forgot For old lang syne For old lang syne We have a link to Olivier's website for Au Chateau. It's in this week's program details for Travel with Rick Steves, and you can find that in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Now that we know what we're drinking, let's visit with some of our friends from Scotland, Anne Doig and Ken Handley, to hear how they keep their traditions in Edinburgh for welcoming in the new year. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank Pleasure. you for having us, Rick. Are you looking forward to New Year's in Edinburgh? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. How do you celebrate New Year's Eve in Edinburgh? Awful excited. Uh, uh, very traditionally. I know we have what's said to be the biggest street party in the world, but, you know, if we're going for tradition, which I still do and Anne still does, then one of the, the big things is that you make sure the house is clean. <laughs> so the house, in other words, has got to be clean. And you make sure that you've got enough drink for your friends and things like that. And it's just even spontaneous that uh, people go first footing. So you go first footing, and to go first footing properly, you have to have a piece of black coal, a wee piece of cake, and a wee bottle of whiskey. What's first footing? It goes, you go to friends, you just tap well, a you door. You go visiting. And you yeah. have, visiting. Oh, you, you, go, you drop into your neighbours, and what do you have with you? You have a piece of coal, yeah. a cake, a piece of cake, and a whiskey. So you've got food, whiskey. drink, and warmth. You've got all that can sustain you. So and they're not going to turn you away. Absolutely not. And I think if you have, if your first footer, uh, traditionally in, in Scotland, is tall, dark, and handsome, that means that you're going to have a year of good luck. It's quite interesting. It has to be dark. And I wonder if anyone knows why it has to be a dark mm. person, dark here. It dates back to the attacks by the Vikings, the blonde, tall Vikings. If you were blonde, you might be a threat. So it had to be a dark person. 
And you open at the strike of midnight, you open your front door and rush through and open the back door. So you're welcoming in the new year and letting the old year out. So there's all these traditions that we adhere to. (laughs) Wow. Now, is there something that is like a countdown in in Edinburgh? Or do you look at London? Or in New York, we have Times Square and they drop the ball and so on. It's fireworks, really. We don't have a, a countdown, but... There's a big street party, you see, so they'll be counting down on the stage. There are entertainers and oh, yeah. bands playing. So on and TV so they all, you'd have the big band. Yes, and, the big ca- and then all of a sudden there's an explosion of fireworks over Edinburgh Castle. With but the then backdrop. you get down with your neighbours and you open your front door. Absolutely. And you open the back door. Yes. Well, as Anne explained, that is a tradition. And we're welcoming in the new by opening the door. And the back door, you're getting rid of the old. And it, it is still adhered to today. I mean, st- total strangers can turn up at your door. And, and, and everyone's and, welcome. And everyone's welcome. And they come in and you offer a drink, you offer a piece of cake, you have a wee blether, uh, you know, and then That's you move along. And a wee blether is a wee little blether top. A wee blether is a little top. <laughs> have a wee blether. And it then. sort of gets known in the community who's got open house. That's what happens. Okay. And if you've got open house, then everyone piles in to visit you. So right. if, you're in, if you're in Scotland on New Year's Eve, it's just like one big open house. People are on the streets, they've got their coal and their drink and their cake, and they're going to yep. knock on a stranger's door and celebrate the New Year. Absolutely. We all sing uh, Old Lang Syne. Old Lang Syne. Yeah, yeah. yeah we that, do. That's oh. Scottish, isn't it? That's, yes. Uh, Robert Burns. That's Robert yeah. Burns. What, yeah. what does that mean, Old Lang Syne? For the sake of Old Lang Syne. A lot of different interpretations. I would say for old friends. Remembering. Remembering. Friends for, for friendship's sake. And you know the song. Sing the song for me. It's an uh, old sentimental yeah. uh, song, old you know. acquaintance be forgotten, never brought to mind. Should old acquaintance be forgot for the sake of old Lang Syne? Now, here's the hand, my trusty friend, and here's the hand, oh mine. And it goes on. And, and you're all scene. holding hands. Then, over. But people that don't know it don't mix it. And then it's backwards and forward. It's this inbuilt thing in the Scots that... Uh, you know, it's been great to see you. We don't want to see you go, but because you're going away, for the sake of all Lang Syne, keep that memory, keep everything, that heartfelt thing. So that's the, that's the punchline of the lyric is, for the sake, sake of, of all Lang Syne. The old, same, the old good sake old of friends. times. Yeah. Yes. Of good our, old friends. For the sake of good old friends. That's my interpretation. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Our right. friends in England are trying to steal it from us, but we won't. That's Scottish. <laughs> for the sake of old Lang Syne, Happy New Year. <laughs> happy, happy New Year. year all the best to you. Happy New Year, Rick Boy. <laughs> How does travel factor into your resolutions for the new year? You can share your thoughts with us in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. Up next, we'll check in with listeners at 877-333-7425 or by email to radio at ricksteves.com to hear where they're thinking of going in the year ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's check in with our listeners right now to hear about your favorite places to travel and what you're enjoying about the big wide world. We're at 877-333-RICK. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Sasha's on the phone in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I was calling to talk a little bit about missing travel. Um, When I was younger, I got to go to a lot of different places around the world. I was fortunate to live in uh, France and Luxembourg. And in my adult years now, I'm in Oklahoma, and I don't get to travel very much. And so I've solved the problem with stovetop travel. My family and I are going uh, around the world in our imaginations by eating one meal from every country in the world. 
Stovetop Travel. I love it. Yeah, uh, called the Global Table Adventure. Each week we try something from a different country. We're going alphabetical order so that um, there's no preference given to size of country or popularity of country. Okay, so you're, you're strictly following the A through Z list of countries, and you study up uh, any way you can about, you know, Algeria or whatever country you're dealing with, and then mm-hmm. you go shopping and you bring it home and travel through your stovetop. Yeah, and, it, and it's been a really great experience because... I've been able to speak with, um, actually not just in, through books, but I've done research by speaking with people all over the world. I've started to make friends. You know, people are so passionate about food from their culture, and so they're very excited to share with me recipes from their families, and it's made the experience so much richer. In Tulsa, you find people that are from different parts of the world, and they can help you out? Oh, yeah, and, well, it's all on a website. So my readers from globaltableadventure.com, they come and they email me and they send me things. So I've even made pen pals around the world. Oh, so this is actually, you have a website. Yes, yes. Uh, It's globaltableadventure.com. And Uh the reason I did that was because I wanted to share it and raise awareness for other cultures, you know, to respect for other cultures. Oh, this is brilliant. So you're motoring this, and then people can go to globaltableadventure.com and connect with people from different cultures who are proud of their cuisine and share some ideas. Yep, and each week we try a few different things from each country so to get a full perspective on it. And my little, my daughter is two years old, so she was a big inspiration for it. I wanted her to be able to experience um, other cultures. And right now, you know, they say it's the formative years. Oh, you know it. Our kids, we we exposed our kids to cuisine of different countries from the time they were that age, and it makes a huge difference. But what about your husband? Oh, my husband. Well, he's kind of been nicknamed Mr. Picky on the website because... (laughs) Um, (laughs) When I met him, it's pretty amazing, actually. He grew up in uh, rural Oklahoma, and he didn't know what an eggplant was. He had never had fresh spinach. So it's been, for him, a really amazing journey. Um, He's gone from not not even understanding what sushi was to trying it. He used to look at food and just, based on what he saw, not want to try it. And now he's very curious and interested and likes to talk about what the flavors are and things. So. Wait, we've promoted a lot of websites over the years on this show, and I'm really enthusiastic about repeating this one, globaltableadventure.com. And then you can tap into that and get ideas for whatever country's next on your strict alphabetical run through the countries and their cuisines. Are you able to find the ingredients you need in, in Oklahoma or wherever in the United States uh, to put these meals together? Well, and yes, and in fact, I, I limit myself to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't do any mail orders because I feel like it should be mm-hmm. accessible to people in sort of medium-sized cities because sort of my goal is to have recipes that moms around the world are making with toddlers hanging off their dresses, you know. So I have little international markets I go to and then also the farmer's market and just the grocery store, and I'm able to find everything, in fact, I found uh, fermented locust beans from Africa at a little market here in Tulsa. So it's been... You know, that's one good thing about our modern world and globalization and everything, is you can find these ingredients that I would imagine two generations ago, no way. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, and the Internet has changed everything. Like I said, being able to reach out to other people who are passionate about cooking. So where are you now on your trip through the world uh, from your uh, stovetop travel? What, What country's up this week? This week we're cooking Kuwait. So we're almost exactly halfway through, actually. There's 195 countries, and we're just shy of being at the halfway mark. And every week you do a different country? Yes, yes, every week. So that's about four country. years of beautiful travel through your stovetop? Well, it's Global Table Adventure, yeah. Wow. And the reason I call it Global Table Adventure is because I feel like in order to create peace, we have to invite everybody to sit down together at a global table. Um, you know, everybody has to join in and, and share and one of the things I feel is really important is a positive message. So when I write about the countries, I always share positive stories. There's enough outlets for the negative. Do you invite friends over, or is this just a family affair? Yes, we have friends over. It depends on the week and what's going on with our lives, but we uh, recently had a big dinner party when we did South Korea, and we did bibimbap, which I went to a little market and found the bowls that you heat up on your stovetop, and then you fry your rice at the table in your own bowl. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so... We've done some really fun things with friends. Yeah. Do you remember the the past meals? I mean, you're in K now. What did you do for Iceland? For Iceland, well, Iceland was a funny one. We I did one thing, which was a sort of a fun little quick recipe uh, where you take rhubarb and you dry it out in the sun. Which in Oklahoma we have some really hot summers. You dry it like a raisin, and then you can put that in baked goods. Okay. Yeah, and then we did uh, like a bread soup. 
I'm glad um, you... I just wondered if you did the rotten shark, because that oh. might end your husband's interest in stovetop travel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, we definitely didn't do that. But I did mention it. Oh, and we did a blueberry cardamom ice cream, which was delicious. Nice. Yeah. So when you think back on the letters A through K, what's a couple of your favorite discoveries, you personally, for food that you would have never known otherwise? Well, I think what has been really intriguing are combinations that I maybe wouldn't have expected to like. For example, um, actually just this week with Kuwait, we did a tahini and date syrup mixture, which is a dip there. And I personally, before this adventure, didn't like tahini very much. I'm not really sure what it was, but something about the bitter flavor. Well, when you mix it with date syrup, it tastes an awful lot like peanut butter and jelly, which is really unusual. So what was exciting about that was, okay, it was simple, but also just it opened my mind to a different way to eat something I had never, you know, thought I would like. You probably gain an appreciation of how different cultures fit their environment with Mm -hmm. their cuisine. Oh, sure, yeah. And, you know, I I like the dishes that bring everybody around the table, like that bibimbap where we cooked it in the bowl. So you actually will eat the way people do in that country. So it'll be with your fingers in Ethiopia, with chopsticks in Japan and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in fact, my daughter at two, she's using chopsticks, which is super cute. Um, You know, she has them tied together at the top, but she can pick up her edamame and all that. Do people learn about the uh, recipes and the ingredients and so on right from the website? Yes, at globaltableadventure.com they can go, and I have a menu with, uh, it has breakfast and sweets and organized like that. So So you've got 195 countries in alphabetical order with a recipe and the ingredients for each, and this is stuff that people can reasonably cook in in Spokane or Topeka or or wherever. Yes, and in fact, one of the most popular recipes, just to give you an idea, is from Ireland. It was the Guinness chocolate cake with Bailey's buttercream. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That, you know, it's all very straightforward. I, um, I love the eyes, all the countries that start with the I. Mm. Oh, yeah. In Indonesia, we did a, India. A, a wonderful fried rice breakfast dish, nasi goreng, with a fried egg on top. They call it cow's eyes. Nice, so. nice. <laughs> hey, Sasha, you've got a, a peace and uh, understanding kind of initiative, and what a clever and beautiful way to do it, to celebrate the cuisines of our world through 195 different countries. Once again, your website, globaltableadventure.com. Yes, thank you so much, Rick. Okay, bye. Bye. on the phone in Weston, Florida. Hi, Rick. It's great talking to you. I really enjoy your show. Thank you. What's on your mind from a travel point of view? Well, I just wanted to mention to you that when my husband and I travel, um, we just kind of ourselves into the city and then we just kind of walk around and try to figure out what's going on just by looking at the pace of the people and we do a lot of our travels on foot once we land in a a major city. Um, We'll use public transportation. Uh, My husband, of course, likes to take cabs out to dinner, but we'll use uh, some of the local transportation just to get around. And I called uh, to comment on Paris when we were in Paris, Uh, what an easy city it is to walk around. Uh, we were quite surprised how close the subway stops are. So you really don't need to go underground to go four blocks. Right. You can, you know, just, you know, walk. The best thing to do is to get a, a city map and just kind of study it, look at it and find out where all the sites are. And before you know it, you're walking around, and as you turn a corner, there's one of the museums you wanted to visit or there's a site that you had heard about or a store or a shop. There is a wonderful form of transportation if you're there uh, during the summer months. It's called the Bato Bus, and I think it runs between April and October. And it goes up and down the Seine, and it's like, you know, on and off. You get daily passes, and you can buy like three or four-day or five-day passes. And it's just really a great way to travel up and down, get off, visit the sites along the way, and just enjoy the people on the Bato Bus. It goes up and down the Seine River, and it, it works like a, a city bus, stopping at various uh, right. uh, docks along the river. And you found that practical from a sightseeing point of view. Yes, and if you're tired from walking yeah, around, it's very, and go you down, know, get on the... <laughs> and it gives, and you a little, it gives you a little exposure to the, the beautiful quay and, and the, the riverside there in Paris. You know, it's so interesting when you talk about just walking to get to know a town. I've been going to Paris all my life, and 
this last summer, my, my little sister came over there, and it was her first time in Paris, and she was going to be there for a while, but I, I spent the first day with her, and we just wandered aimlessly. I knew she'd see the museums later on, and I was, Bye. considering how much I've seen Paris and so on, writing a book about it and whatever, I was in major, important, beautiful, exciting neighborhoods that I had never been in before, simply walking. And, of course, you have your little uh, map from the hotel in your pocket, but I found uh, beautiful neighborhood maps are posted on a lot of corners near the metro stations and so on. So you could kind of, when you see a map, stop and see what's nearby and then just wander wherever your spirit takes you. And it's uh, quite a nice experience, isn't it? It was wonderful. One evening while we were walking, it was kind of drizzly. We were anxious to, to find a cab. We couldn't find a cab because you have to go to taxi stands to find it. But we just enjoyed the walk. And as we were walking, we crossed over and there we were in front of Notre Dame and the local people were dancing, and it was just a real Paris moment. It was like the end of summer for a lot of the college students, mm-hmm. so they were all kind of gathering, just enjoying their bread and their wine. It was just so wonderful to see people out and just really enjoying the sights and enjoying the city. Speaking of that kind of Paris moment and that wonderful outdoor ambiance, uh, when you did the bateau bus, the the boat bus going up the river. Yes. Did you find uh, just beyond the Notre Dame and the Ile de la Cité is a park with modern art in it along the riverbank? Did you find that? Yes. And they've got those little semicircular kind of theaters going out from the river where people would dance in the evenings. And just to wander through there, you kind of go, whoa, this is the non-touristy side of Paris that really is high quality of good life. Oh, it certainly is. And even on the bateau bus, there were young people that had maybe met at college that summer from all different parts of the world, and they were together, they were happy, they were singing, they were enjoying their wine, and I don't know if that's allowed the wine on there, but they were having a good time, and it was just fun to watch people having such a great time. They can have uh, alcohol in the outdoors in Europe and, and get away with it, and it seems to be part of the whole scene. Jeannie, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Maybe I'll see you wandering through Paris sometime. Happy travels. Oh, boy, wouldn't that be great? Bye-bye now. Bye now. We're checking in with listeners who have travel on their mind for the year ahead at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And Michael from Granbury, Texas, emailed us. He writes, My wife and I have traveled all over the U.S. and Europe. Friends are often jealous of us and tell us they just don't have the money to travel. I tell them it's a matter of choice. You give up eating out for lunch every day and instead put the cash toward your dream trip. You also need to decide what's important to you on your trip. Instead of fancy hotels... All we want is a pleasant room to sleep in and use as a base. Some of the best meals we encountered in Rome were paninis from the roach coaches all around the city. Budget doesn't mean missing out. It simply means a different kind of adventure. That's from Michael in Granbury, Texas. And that comment about paninis from the little roach coaches around the town, it's so true when you're in these towns, especially at lunchtime, look around for the popular sandwich shops, and they're easy to identify because they have long lines, not of tourists, but of local workers. And these people... Every day they go out for lunch, and they know where the the place is famous for their salami and cheese and beautiful breads are. Oftentimes they'll serve a a fine glass of wine with it, and you'll eat it standing up or or sitting on the curb or in a nearby park. And not only are you part of the scene, not only are you enjoying some great local, you know, sandwich cuisine, but you're spending almost nothing. It's dirt cheap, and it's good travel. Beth Ann's on the line in Dublin, Ohio. Beth Ann, thanks for your call. Bonjour, Rick. Bonjour, ça va? I was just listening in with the Paris call, and we did spend a few days in Paris, but it was our launch site because then we went to Normandy. And I must say that all of Normandy is worthwhile. You could spend a year there, but Rouen is my absolute favorite. Let's say you have an interest in cuisine. Well, you can be a foodie and just go crazy in Rouen. The prices that you will pay for the wine or the beer, the cider, the cavados, the camembert, it's much cheaper than in many other tourist spots in Normandy. And it's delicious. Well, let's say you have an interest in um, English kings or the Dukes of Normandy. Well, there's a strong history there. Well, let's say you care about the cathedrals and the museums. It's all there, and I'm sure you've been to Rouen. I was near Rouen in another town in that part of France, and I was working on our France book with my co-author, Steve Smith. And we'd like to go out and have a real nice dinner outside of Paris. And we found for 
half the price, literally half the price of what you'd spend in Paris for a decent dinner, you can get a delightful highlight of your trip dinner. And let's make sure people know the town we're talking about. R-O-U-E-N. Rouen. It's the hometown of Jeanne d'Arc, I think. Or No, that's where Jeanne d'Arc was burned. And that's a very important part of French history. It's got incredible half-timbered buildings all over the downtown, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And there's so many fascinating slices of uh, history and culture that you can find, especially in the small towns. Yes. In Rouen, because it's become a major metropolitan center, you not only have that core rich in history with this towering cathedral. I mean, it was the tallest in the world for almost 100 years, I think. Hmm. I would say that of all the many churches and many spires in Rouen, to go only to that cathedral would be a trip in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Because you can do a walking tour of the restoration through the years because it's gone through um, bombings and fires and lots of troubles through the years. And it's been rebuilt each time. That's the cathedral that Monet painted at different times (gasps) of the day. And I have a funny story about that. And I don't know if it's true, so we'll have to verify it. Catty-cornered, from the cathedral, is what we understood to be a lady's foundation shop, you know, brassieres and whatever. Well, what Monet did was to rent a sitting room on the second floor. And so he was up there for a year or so doing his 30 or so studies of the cathedral. But I thought it was just fascinating that he was over this lady's foundation shop. I guess we could find a joke about that in a moment, but uh, the main thing is that was so important for... Impressionism. Monet, sort of the father of Impressionism, he chose to paint the same physical subject from the same angle at different times a day, recognizing that his actual subject for his Impressionist painting was not the building, the church and the architecture and the arches and all that, but how the light and the shadows and the color would play on that building at dawn, at high noon, at dusk, at different kinds of weather. And that is, in a nutshell what Impressionism is all about. And to go there and to understand that and then to look at those paintings, it is quite an inspiration, isn't it? Oh, it was. There is a museum right there in Rouen, um, the Musée de Beaux-Arts, and it's lovely. But, of course, you don't want to miss all the other centers of art in France. Well, it's a good example of how before you go to France, if you're going to be especially in that part of France, uh, you would really be wise to bone up a little bit on that era of art so you could appreciate all you'll be seeing. Bethann, thank you so much for um, reminding us that two hours to the west of Paris is a city that's well worth checking out, Rouen. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at WWNO in New Orleans for studio help today. We can send you an email with our next recording dates and topics. That's where you can join us as a caller and chat with Rick and his guests. Look for a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com and we'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Have a happy New Year. To All you. the best to you. Happy New Year, Rick. Bye. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.